Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 173, Mulan with Jeanette Ng. Oh gosh, I Jeanette provided such interesting insight into the Mulan story that I just like can't imagine anyone else telling it to us. So I'm really, really glad that we had her on. Yeah, sometimes there is a guest who I just want to uh, listen to and not say anything because then they can't talk anymore. And this was definitely one of those where I was just like, uh, like I, I want to do so much reading. I have so many books on my list now. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get us into the episode as soon as possible, Amanda. So let's hit our usual stuff and start by thanking our new patrons. Yes, Adam, Raven, Lady Gervasio, Patricia, Heather, Bobby, Katie, and Alexander. Thank you for joining. Welcome. We we appreciate you. We support you. We think you are beautiful and wonderful. And we feel very similarly about our supporting producer level patrons, Philip, Landon, Nikki, Tyree, Megan, Deborah, Skyla, Molly, Samantha, Sammy, Neil, Jessica, and Phil Fresh. And our legend level patrons, Kylo the Husky, Francis, Clara, Lacey, Brittany, Josie, Kylie, Morgan, Be Me Up, Scotty, Audra, Necrofancy, Mark, Mr. Folk, Sarah, and Jack Marie. All of you are so wonderful. You deserve people to tell epic poems about you for centuries to come. Ah, oh, so nice, Julia. And can you remind us the delicious cocktail you made? So I used a sesame oil-infused bourbon that I made at home for Jake and I. It's Again, this is one of the few brown liquors I can actually manage to drink nowadays. And it was super easy to make. If you're one of our patrons, I'm going to share the recipe of how to make a sesame oil-infused bourbon with you as part of our recipe cards. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Absolutely. I feel like as I level up my uh, cocktail making, adding fats to cocktails is sort of like mm-hmm. that's that's the next level, whether it's egg white or like a, a like butter washing the glass or yeah, oh, fa- so good. Fat washing is so interesting with uh, different liquors. I really want to get more into it. Yeah. Uh, shaker and spoon. Very good way to do that. Great. And Julia, I think you also have a recommendation for us this week. I've been reading and it feels like a really perfect pairing to go with our Mulan episode, uh, The Descendant of the Crane by uh, Joan Heath is extremely good. I bought it when we were at the Ripped Bodice in LA. And honestly, it was fantastic. Um, really, really enjoy it. It's a uh, murder mystery. And there's also a little bit of magic and there's a little bit of romance. It's great. Oh, that sounds amazing. And I also want to recommend if you are looking for more content, more like fun, lighthearted, get your mind off of things um, type podcast to listen to, you can always join the multi crew for just $5 and get a new weekly podcast from Multitude. Head Heart Gut is our weekly friendly debate show. And it we just wrapped up a uh, fast and furious round, which was extremely good uh, and very fun to participate in. So you can learn more about it at multicrew.club. Check it out. It is an absolute blast. And if you're also looking for more content, you can join our Patreon. You can get bonus content for as little as $1 per episode. And that is at patreon.com slash spirits podcast. We really appreciate everybody who supports us, whether that's as a member of the Patreon, a multi-crew, or just sharing spirits with your friends. All of these are material ways to help us out and make sure that we can keep doing this as our jobs. So thank you. We love you all. Be well. And for now, enjoy. Episode 173, Milan with Jeanette. We are joined today for a rollicking discussion of Mulan by Jeanette M, who is a speculative fiction novelist and award-winning author and just a fabulous person on Twitter and the internet. And we're so excited to be joined by you. Hello. Hello. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and talk about 
um, my my favorite um, Chinese folktale. I'm sorry to recite your accomplishments to you. <laughs> uh, I just said Chinese folktale, and that's the trap because it's not. Oh, there <laughs> we go. Let's, chi- let's start uh, there. Exactly. That's uh, the the most exciting thing about Mulan, or the most interesting thing about Mulan for me. Starting at the beginning, um, everyone knows the story of Mulan because of the Disney movie. You know, girl disguises boy, joins the army because her father's too sick, um, and or you know he has an injured leg. Um, she's got no brothers. She she goes to disguise in the army, and you know. Re- returns in in glory and and you know and, and kind of and there's a there's a ballad of Mulan which is the oldest known version and that dates back to round about 400 AD and the magical thing about it for me is because I, I knew it off by heart um, from from a teenager and it's always taught to me as as a Chinese folk tale and and you know ask anyone you know it's, it's obviously Chinese and a lot of discourse right now is about it being its inherent Chineseness. Mm. Um, the, but the thing is, the Ballad of Mulan is not a Chinese and certainly not a Han Chinese um, story. Mulan is Turkic. Um, oh, hmm. uh, she serves a Khan and not an emperor in the ballad. And it says so. Her trappings of her culture, they are all of a Turkic origin. When she goes to war, she, she buys a horse and a saddle and a bridle. And, 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 you know, the, the, the emphasis of kind of horse culture, for right. example. Um, and that's kind of the, the thing about Mulan that kind of fascinates me the most, that, you know, it, it hasn't sort of been co-opted. And, and, you know, admittedly co-opted, you know, many like, hundreds of years ago into and has become this Chinese story um, and become a very nationalistic Chinese story. Um, over time, the kind of the, the way the story evolved is very much... Um, there was as much to tell about the changes to the story of Mulan over time because there are so many versions um, um, as as there are to um, the story itself, which which is a very simple one um, because the details do do differ in in various versions. Could you walk us through the beats of the story that tend to show up in all of the different versions rather than just like the the variations? <laughs> um, so. The, the very the most basic story of Mulan is is this is the story of um, the Khan and sometimes in later versions the Emperor um, is is summoning an army. Um, there is war um, and every household has to has to has to bring a male soldier to join the army um, and then they go to war and she does she goes into disguise and she comes back and then you start kind of going into the details like who she is fighting that changes from version to version mm. um mulan's own culture and ethnicity changes and like you know sometimes she's fighting bandits with like exotic like exciting names like um leopard skin um sometimes mm. she's fighting the xiongnu sometimes she's fighting the tibetans <laughs> um sometimes it doesn't even really say who she's fighting <laughs> Wow. Um, it, it's very ambiguous who she's fighting. Um, and, and that's really interesting to me. Um, and she's been set in very different periods. And obviously, the kind of there's a quite an interesting revolving cast. Oh, um, uh, during the, the height of kind of having bound feet, there are versions with Mulan where she unbinds her feet to go into the army. Wow. Whoa. And um, what's promising to the audience that she's got a secret recipe that she can make her, her feet small again, <laughs> you know, after the war. It'll be fine. She'll get married. That is so interesting. And that's in um, that's in the 16th century play, um, and and what's what's really exciting about that one is is how is how remarkably it's it's very 
it's kind of very sexual um, mm. in a way where there's a lot of sexual tension around the, the threat of being in the army. And that's also the version where she marries her neighbor's son. So the, the basic beats are very, very simple. And it's it's in the variations where it kind of gets strange. Um, and, and even cross-dressing itself is quite a common story beat in a lot of um, Chinese folklore. And I think one of the very interesting things to me about Mulan is European, quote unquote, Western culture has this kind of idealization of the warrior. Mm. Um, you have the kind of the class of people, you know, the knights and the warrior king character in, you know, King Arthur type stories. Like it's, it's a very, the idea of masculinity being bound up in um, martial pursuits is very fundamental to that, to, to that idea. Um, and, and it follows very naturally that women warriors um, would kind of be a sort of egalitarian kind of feminist take of like we can be warriors too mm. we can attain this this highest mark of society so there are kind of all these threads of Mulan that I'd, I'd like to explore with you um including stuff like um how cross-dressing is a very common mm. beat in uh, Chinese um in sort of Chinese drama across the centuries and Chinese stories across the centuries but um and this is kind of the bit that I find very exciting um is that the ones authored by women that are Told that women like um, that are found in the uh, Nushu cache of stories. Uh, so Nushu is a uh, a female uh, like a script that only women use in Diaoyong County. It's a wonderful, really unique bit of Chinese culture. Uh, basically, the women of that county have a a writing system of their very own, and it is um, it is phonetic, um, and it is, it is notably different um, to so-called man's writing. I wish you could see my face right now because I, this is so interesting. I love this. It's so fascinating. It, I didn't think it's like a vast secret. It showed up in an episode of Sherlock once. Nope. I don't know why I didn't know that. But <laughs> And obviously we have that cache of stories because they, they write to each other um, letters um, and they, they write these books that, that they basically... Um, give to each other when they get married and, and basically you know they're scrapbooks in, in a way mm. um, and one of the things they do because it's a it's a county that produces uh, a lot of uh, needlework and embroidery and that, that's one of the, the things they produce uh, women spend a lot of time in the manufacture of clothes and embroidery and so forth and and they sing stories to each other mm. um, and, and so then we have a cache of stories which are basically the ones that they copy out that they like to, to repeat themselves mm. um, and, and we have a very interesting cross-section of the stories that basically these women real women liked and very much you know to the exclusion of men whilst obviously if they read it out loud men would understand it it was primarily used by women it makes a lot more sense now why there is a uh, mulan show that as you wrote in your wonderful article has like half to do with needlepoint like half the episodes are just about needlepoint and that that seems to have a lot more resonance than when i originally read it and was like i mean i'm here for it but you know that seems a little unexpected to me well the thing about this corpus um, is its absence mm. of women warriors right it has two stories of um of female character women who kind of ballads basically about women who basically change their gender one is the classic butterfly lovers where Ying tai um goes to school she disguises herself as a scholar she meets her true love and they die tragically um, because they, they can't get married and they become butterflies and it's, it's, it's super tragic it's 
probably the most important piece of Chinese folklore, and it's also gay as fuck. Um, yes, it is. Since obviously they fall in love. We, uh, <laughs> we covered it on the um, show uh, with a very good friend of mine, Linda, and it was incredible. Exactly. I, I feel like I know beat for beat everything she told us because mm-hmm. it just like was seared in my memory. Uh, and it, it's, it's so dramatic. It's so extra. And, and then there's another one, which is about uh, a woman who, who becomes very holy through like Buddhist meditation and sutras. And she, you basically, she dies and she comes back as a as a man. He aces all his exams, and uh, and then he asks the um, emperor to help him locate the husband and children of his previous life. They get back together, and they basically disappear together to you know refine um, you know the, the teachings of Buddha and read um, and become transcendent beings. That um, sounds great. What a life! But, but again. <laughs> But the the thing about it again is is that the sort of the, the the view of escape isn't to enter into that martial world and kind of my kind of my favorite saying kind of whenever I talk about Mulan is in in terms of Chinese culture at least is that there's a there's a the saying that you don't make nails out of good iron and you don't make soldiers out of good men. Hmm. The military is not in at least um, the eyes of Chinese scholars and the Chinese literati and therefore Chinese dominant culture is not seen as a glorious, good pursuit for a lot of its history. There are, there are exceptions because um, there's a lot of that history and obviously the culture is more complicated than, than, than this one saying, um, but it certainly doesn't have that same kind of martial tradition, like the night cast type things that, um, that kind of European um, stories are, are kind of valorized, that kind of... Um, martial world it's quite interesting to me that we have like for example um these uh female courtesan poets uh, writing during the ming dynasty um the late ming the fall of ming and so forth uh they they wrote a lot of poems they were very active in the south of china and and they became quite celebrated figures and they wrote plays and they wrote and when they write stories about um people who were women or assigned female at birth since some of them read as very trans um they don't write about people who become warriors they write about people who become scholars Mm -hmm. who who pass exams who who prove their worth by by scholarly pursuit and i i find that kind of fascinating what about it do you love it's kind of that contradiction of how um, European or even like the sort of standard stereotype of how we view Mulan as the story of liberation. Right. That she she assumes a male identity and and it's it's the story of of transcending kind of the the barriers of gender that that she attains this glory. Mm. And in some ways, I don't think the overall Chinese tradition is not to see it as a story of liberation. It is a story of duty. Mm-hmm. Um, Though duty to what does change, and that kind of brings me lately round to talk about how Mulan's motivations do shift over time, mm. where at first um, they're very rooted in kind of filial piety to her father um, and the loyalty to her father and keeping him safe so that he doesn't have to go to war. Right. Over time, it shifts to a more nationalistic, um, protecting the, the nation, the family, the, boundary, the borders. Um, the emperor, mm. um, service to the emperor is not just an obligation, but is something that, that she's truly passionate about. And that sort of it kind of dovetails into kind of the rise of nationalism 
Um, and that's, that is a, a very interesting trajectory for a character as well. Mm. You've written about Mulan um, as a kind of like nationalizing project. And I think it is so fascinating um, to kind of tease out the ways in which, you know, what what exactly is the moral of the story? Or like, what exactly is the thing that we are valorizing about this character? Yes. No, that was the other thing. Um, the, the animated Mulan in the song, uh, Bring Honor to Us All, in the Mandarin version... Mm. I'm sorry, this is very obscure. But in the Mandarin version, you can cut this. In no, I love it. No, no. We song, live in the obscure. We're um, here for it. <laughs> I bring honor to us all. This is the one that was presumably that was you know in mainland China. Um, there is a line which in English is basically um, you know men go bear arms and that's their duty, and women bear sons basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the Mandarin version, it's men become ministers and attend court and women have children. Huh. And it's reflecting that scholarly tradition of how atta- like the greatest attainment isn't to go to war. Wow. Wow. That's that's so interesting. And obviously, like, you know, in, in the English version, it's acting as kind of like a foreshadowing for all the stuff that, that's to come, mm. whereas the Mandarin version is like, no, we're not doing that. Not <laughs> no, <here."> no. <laughs> yeah. But also, I think kind of... Um, undergirds sort of like U.S. values of, you know, service and duty and like a militaristic uh, protection, Um, obviously not for the U.S., but there is that background there. But I think the militaristic um, heroism is is quite important. Um, And it's a bit of a Chinese thing that uh, heroes and stories um, and and people writing in general love using the past as exemplars. So they would say, I'm doing this because it is like insert famous person here Mm -hmm. they did this and and they were a good person so i'm being like them and this validates my actions basically Mm -hmm. and in a lot of the different versions of mulan who she compares herself to um in her monologues kind of shows you what qualities she's emphasizing okay so like um very often she will uh compare herself to a ying who um who is a, a woman who um, whose father was being um, you know, done for treason or something, was to be executed, and she volunteers to be executed on his behalf. Huh. And I think that's kind of part of the idea of war in some of these stories, which is, and some of these versions, view war as a choice of basically death. Like, yeah. so it, 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 the kind of trading of yourself for your father to go to war, it's not about, like, the valor of, the, the glory of the fight. It's about they need an extra body and you will do yeah, filial piety to like the absolute extreme. Yeah, well, there, there are many, many stories of filial piety. Um, <laughs> the 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 cutting off your own thigh to to feed your parents is always a favorite. Um, yeah, that's uh, metal. Yeah. There's no other way to describe it's pretty it. Pretty metal. Well, um, it's uh, it's one of the things that uh, Chinese uh, Chinese history used to be quite well documented and having quite a lot of laws have a lot of laws against uh, cannibalism because uh, there is uh, because the stories of filial piety hold that um, one of the things that would cure you is the flesh of your child. Ooh, okay, <gasps> not great. Uh, that's a bit dark. <laughs> Uh, so there, there are there are at various dynasties have have laws emphasizing how you you shouldn't eat your children. Um, Probably a good rule in that, general, but it makes sense in context. Yes. Like it, it does. It's not just like you know people are are making wild decisions. Like they're with with context is some amount of understanding. Uh, usually, it's 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 cutting off a piece of your child rather than murdering them. By the yes, way, good. <laughs> on the record, if that makes it any better, I have no idea. I mean, you're not um, you're not murdering a child, so a little bit. <laughs> Um, though, though there is one where um, where one of the para one of the parables of filial piety does involve a man basically saying, um, 
I only have one mother. I can always have more children. So um, it's a it's 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 so it's, it's a height of famine, and he chooses to save his mother instead of his child. Mm. Wow, exemplar of filial piety. <laughs> and, and you know, he, he is kind of right that you know he he does. One of them is slightly more replaceable than the other in, yeah. in that very specific. No, it, that, that's the thing though. It's like it's it's like on the one hand, it is like hashtag just filial piety things, but also you see the logic. Like it's not people are not cartoon villains. You know, all the, even though something we may see now as like horrifying or or something that we would never choose you know people are making real choices with the options in front of them and, and like i i don't condone it but like i i understand it there's a bannerman version and this is a fragment rather than um uh that than like a full version mm. it ends shortly after she goes to the she tri- arrives in the army um it's also the version with uh with what is probably the ancestor of sexy li shang mm. Because it's it's one where um, the general is is very very handsome and they kind of flirt, uh, depending on how you read it. Um, Listen, that's but he's notably young and handsome, rather than in other versions where he's also surnamed Lee, but he is not young and handsome, mm. um, and in fact is best friends with her grandfather. That's I mean okay. that's also cool. Yeah. Just as long as you're not romancing your grandfather's friends. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> the Bannerman version um, has her kind of basically argue with her father about the validity of kind of warrior women stories um, that she has heard in the past. Mm. And basically he dismisses them as, you know, fantasies written by bards mm. that they're just all basically bullshit um, and, and she shouldn't kind of try to emulate them. And she argues quite the opposite that, you know, that people can women herself can do remarkable things and that that she will it's quite amusing in terms of the kind of argue of historical precedent um it is it's very much like like a legal argument like who like just because a decision was made or a story exists doesn't necessarily mean that it's worth um emulating but also who's to say like you you can choose the things that um best align with what you want to do and hearing that kind of like metatextual um like acknowledgement in in a story is so fun and validating yeah i was gonna say it's very interesting that it's self-referential in a way yeah um so so here's a line from it it's like um this is her father saying um just look at the women of the world who of they have ever been like the scarlet thread maiden most of such tales found in books are merely the fabrications of writers and therefore bullshit <laughs> come on yeah it's never bullshit. um and so you know she retorts like you know all this are are the stories of women warriors all untrue mm-hmm. and then you know they they kind of you deny the ancients and say their lies and and again mm-hmm. and it's, it's a really really fun conversation um and it's a real it's a real shame that this one this one isn't complete because because it's one of the the most it is one of the most interesting ones I've read because it also has things like um, her mother arguing that um, the war is just created by evil, um, yeah, evil counselors, um, kind of saber rattling at the um, at the in the borderlands. Dang. Yeah. So it's not about like that. That war isn't about like sort of aggressive, arrogant um, kind of neighboring barbarians attacking it's it's because you know ministers have too much time on their hands very 1984 i'm into it yeah and, and it's um it's really odd because that that is not one i had specifically seen before mm. but um she's very often comparing herself to two people who basically die for their fathers mm. or choose to die for their fathers even though like you know the emperor basically makes it not happen or like their their filial piety is um, is rewarded and they yeah. don't have to die mm. Um, and, and, and so 
and I think that that's again it, it's it's back to that point where I'm making what is this whether or not this is a story of liberation versus a story of sacrifice and I think those two parts are somewhat at odds with each other because sacrifice implies an eradication of the self it, it is mm-hmm. an act of selflessness mm. um, and on a thematic level it, it works counter to the idea of liberation where you are where you are creating and, and claiming the self yeah and I think that's sort of the paradox of Mulan as as the the legacy of the character um, has been left to us that that you have these two aspects to her that's such a powerful duality too because I feel like so much of the human experience is sort of choosing um, between the two or or kind of weighing that scale. Like, which one do you prioritize over the other at any given moment? Mm-hmm. What's also quite interesting is, given how the sort of the trajectory of kind of filial piety to nationalism, how her story is often one that people use to talk about nationalism, dynasties, warfare um, uh, across time. The, the classic is, of course, um, the Tang Dynasty uh, rewrite of the, uh, the Song of Mulan, mm. where um, where the kind of theme is basically the shaming of men for not being as good as um, this this you know this paltry woman. If she can do it, why can't you? <laughs> so it's it's it, it emphasis is less on you know women turn out to be awesome. Right. It's much more a well, women are obviously terrible, but if this one can do it, why can't you? And that kind of um, rhetoric. I mean, and, you know, it's it's not unique to this one Tang Dynasty mm. poem. There are plenty of, you know, it, it's a rhetoric that shows up whenever people are trying to shame men into, con- you know, into volunteering for the army. It's in a lot of World War One posters across mm, the world, yes. for example. Women can work in factories. Why can't you <laughs> go to battle? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's, it is a it's very much the same kind of tone of rhetoric. The Tang Dynasty one is also one that where she has um she wears a turban notably. Huh. I have a sort of chart here that I'm kind of skimming through. Love it. Oh my Love god. Love a chart. This is the best thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I've got I've got nine versions here and they're not all of them. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> <That's> Incredible. So <laughs> Unfortunately, this is a case where you just continue finding new versions and I emphasize Mulan is not the most popular bit of folklore. I I would not say that's unfortunate at all. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you've got kind of the, the Tang Dynasty version of Shaving Men, and you kind of move into, you've got um, like a lot of early Qing novels, which are, for example, trying to make the point about, um, they're, they're basically trying to subtweet the the dynasty, because um, the, the Qing Dynasty, they're Manchurian, they're not very popular because they're not Han Chinese, and they're seen as a conquest dynasty, they're invaders, they're awful, you know, mm. they... They need to be overthrown. Um, so literati, when they're kind of, they like to write novels about how terrible the current dynasty is, but they can't directly say the current dynasty is terrible because that would get them into trouble. Mm-hmm. So they'd often write about a previous dynasty and basically cast some kind of shade. <laughs> Incredible. Um, and Mulan gets kind of co-opted into um, like uh, Chorin Ho's uh, Romance of the Siu and Tang, where it's where it's kind of this vast kind of epic about the the Siu and the Tang dynasties. Um, and it, it's very much trying to make the point of like what makes a dynasty valid, like, you know, what 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 gives them the right to rule and implicitly kind of saying that the Qing dynasty is invalid. Um, and, and you can tell by, you know, me describing these ones. Um, and in it, um, the, the story of Mulan gets kind of 
shows up halfway through it, um, where she's specifically biracial. She's a Tujia and Chinese, mm. and she fights for a Khan, but for a, a alliance between um, the Tujia and um, the uh, Han Chinese, um, a Han Chinese faction. And she, she goes to war, but her part in the story is very much about this year like you know her story is very much a, a tragedy in this one because she ends the Khan basically she saves the Khan's life but you know he he when he works out that she's a girl he, he proposes marriage to her yeah. and um and um and then she discovers her father has died while she's at war yeah. and so you know she asks to see her father's grave and at the her father's grave, she she commits suicide, um, saying that you know she's only loyal to her father. Hmm. Dang girl. And and this version very much has that kind of a feeling where where filial piety and kind of potential loyalty to the dynasty, to the emperor, to the Khan is set at odds with each other. Hmm. And she ultimately, very obviously, chooses her father over the Khan. Hmm. Also notable in this version is that she does have a sister who she sends, um, disguised as a man, but this time as a scholar, on a message. And he and another warrior woman, Do Xianyang, end up married to the same man. Huh. Uh, what a plot twist. And it's all very... Well, it, it, it's one of those feelings like, what? She has a sister? <laughs> She's also in disguise? Yeah. Are you sure that you're not smushing together? Like you've not done that classic thing where you've split a character into two? It's like, <laughs> oh, yes her sister um <laughs> when it, it feels very folkloric in that regard mm-hmm. um, or like a butterfly lovers crossover event kind of <laughs> <laughs> but yes um that that she does sometimes team up with other warrior women is is pretty cool but mainly in the novels um partly because the novels are 15 million chapters long each. no sorry that they're only about 100 chapters long each that's a lot of um, chapters and it is a lot of chapters, and I assume they just run out of plot, and then they just they all have like a million characters, um, like Game of Thrones. <laughs> there's a 19th century one where, like, there, there's like a there's a side story where she gets a she fights an invisible fox spirit who then disguises as a general, and and she has a camel who has the soul of a snake. Oh um, damn! This is so good. This is the very, very supernatural one. This is the 19th century novel that's very, very supernatural. Mm. And it's primarily about her grandfather who has like massive magical powers, who has like a mentor with dark magic and he gets enlightened whilst meeting the goddess of smallpox to to realize that, you know, he must withdraw from society and that is what, you know, true enlightenment is like. Um, You're just hitting all the beats for me. from using his dark magic um for you know good or evil it's it's very important not to use his dark magic and and he teaches that dark magic to mulan who in this version is the spirit of uh, who is the spirit of the mulan mountains incarnate what because her parents were infertile and they prayed to the mountain um because there is an actual mountain called mulan um it's it's near it's in Wuhan, i believe mm-hmm. um and uh and there's a Mulan temple there, by the way. Wow. Yeah, she's just spirit of the mountain implied. And it's a really, really odd one, this, this version. Mm-hmm. Um, because of all the supernatural elements, it, in effect, it, it kind of becomes much more of this kind of story about all the magical powers that she's not using. And this is kind of very important that she doesn't use her magical powers right. because 
um, this this is very um, one of the kind of key ideas that this author is very into is the importance of withdrawal from society being the the only moral thing to do in, in an immoral world, which is again is a very literati theme mm-hmm. and very contemporary. Arguably, yes. Um, like uh, a lot of the uh, uh, the Ming Dynasty literati, when the Ming Dynasty fell and the Qing Dynasty came about, they all kind of had a massive crisis and they they didn't know how to cope for obvious reasons. A lot of Muslim power, a lot of the structure of society they believed in vanished, and obviously you know food shortages and everything. Um, and uh, they a lot of the things that they wrote. Um, like play, not just uh, novels but also plays um, dealt very much with the theme of how to cope in this world yeah and and like for example um, oh god I'm going to misremember which one it is now but there is a like a hundred like a hundred act play um, where you know it's a convoluted love story um, and you know the fall of the, the Ming dynasty falls and basically the lovers are reunited in the last scene and then they're like yes finally we're together you know even though the world is you know, falling apart we finally found each other and then basically a monk shows up and reminds them that it's immoral to be happy <laughs> when the world is falling no! apart and they're like yes you're right and then they split they, they split up and one of and one of them becomes a monk and the other one becomes a nun and then they <laughs> that's how Romeo and Juliet should have ended uh, yes yeah, so it probably would have been a better ending <laughs> It's it's very it, it's it's very much of that that um, it's very easy to see the kind of this this ethos of the time where um, there are a lot of issues that they're trying to work out. Mm. Um, but but in in kind of in the flip side, there were also people who um, this was also the kind of rise of romanticism as a as an idea, the idea that you should kind of um, retreat from society with your one true love and live forever and ever with your one true love and not care about anyone else mm. uh, was also kind of um, one of the kind of themes where kind of loyalty to to a loved one but yes sorry biography mulan is also batshit insane because it ends with a prophecy where she is given the title of wu jiao by the emperor in this um the, the wu jiao general and then the wu jiao at the end, there's a prophecy, uh, and the emperor's like, oh my god, um, the prophecy says that someone by the name of Wu Zhao is going to destroy my dynasty. Oh no. She basically um, like carves out her own heart to prove her innocence. What? Mulan, why? <laughs> by the way, if you haven't worked out who Wu Zhao is, that is the name of Wu Zetian, the one and only female emperor of Chinese history. <laughs> oh, wow. There's so much happening there. I have no idea what it means or why. I just, but it's it's a really weird link, at least to me, of why it just sort of shows up where where like she's basically accused of being Wu Zetian, um, and she's like, no, it, it just and um, and dies to prove her innocence, yeah. which is again um, very classic uh, Chinese football move. Oh my god, I cannot wait to hear more. But first, Juliet, let's grab a quick refill. We are delighted to be sponsored once again by GC2B, the original chest binder designed by trans people for the community. They make gender and identity affirming apparel, and the company was started in 2014 by Marley Washington, a trans man of color, whose goal was to create something safe, accessible, and comfortable for people of all shapes, sizes, and colors. They also put their sizes where their where their you know values are, which I really appreciate. They have three styles available, whether that's the half binder, the tank, the racerback, five shades of nude covering a variety of different skin tones and seven other colors as well, like white, gray, black, whatever, you know, suits your fancy. 
They have two shipping warehouses to try to serve the whole globe and cut down on shipping costs. There's one in the U.S. and one in the U.K. So if you are in the U.K. or Europe, go to gc2b.io to shop directly with them. They also provide free sizing assistance to all countries. You can reach out to their care team and ask them to help you with your size. If they happen to suggest one that ends up not being the right fit for you, they cover the full cost of exchanges, which I think is amazing. And finally, they're dedicated to donating product to organizations that can redistribute binders to those who would otherwise not have access. In 2019 alone, they donated 3,500 binders, which provided support to more than 34 organizations. So for 10% off your order and to check out all of the wonderful products that GC2B has to offer, go to gc2b.co and use the code SPIRITS at checkout. Link is also in the description. That's gc2b.co. And the code is SPIRITS for 10% off. We are also sponsored by EveryPlate, which is America's best value meal kit. They send you meals you enjoy for really low cost. They are America's best value meal kit, and they are offering just $2.99 per meal for three weeks, a special offer now. So let me tell you a little bit more about it. They are a cheaper alternative to takeout or delivery. The recipes come together in about 30 minutes, which is definitely faster than lots of starting meals from scratch or going out to get ingredients and bringing it back home. And you also get to spend less time deciding what to cook because you get to just spend that time enjoying good food with your family when all of the ingredients come to you pre-portioned, pre-measured with easy-to-follow recipe. Even at their regular price, every plate is up to 58% cheaper than other major meal kits out there. And I know for certain that they have high-quality items. I have loved things they've sent me, like chicken and pork chops, and they also have some really good vegetable-based recipes as well. And they are offering now three weeks of every plate for only $2.99 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering the code SPIRITS3. That is everyplate.com with the code SPIRITS3 to get three weeks of every plate meals for just $2.99 per meal. Yeah, that's 40% off your first three boxes. That's really cool. Absolutely. And finally, Amanda, I'm going to talk to you about Third Love. Third Love does bras differently, and they believe that everyone deserves to feel comfortable and confident every day. And with the right support, they can help them do this. Their bras are designed to fit you, not the other way around. They're designed with measurements of millions of people. Their bra sizes are meant to fit your life, and they have over 80 different bra sizes. But the only one that really matters is the one that is yours. Oh, Julia. Love that. I love that. Isn't that sweet? Uh, every bra is backed by their perfect promise guarantee. You have 60 days to wash it and wear it. And if you don't love it, returns are always free. And every bra is made with your comfort in mind. They have memory foam cups, they have no slip straps, and they have smooth scratch-free bands with a printed label. They also donate all of their gently used returned bras to people in need, which is awesome both in the San Francisco Bay Area and across the U.S. Yeah, and it's really easy. You just take this Fit Finder quiz, you answer a few simple questions to find your perfect fit in about 60 seconds. Over 15 million people have taken this quiz to date, and it's actually fun to take and takes less than a minute to complete. Did you know that your breast shape actually matters in finding a good fitting bra? I do now. The Fit Finder quiz is there to help you identify your breast shape and also the shape and size and find the style that is going to best suit your body. And it is hands down the most comfortable bra that I've worn. I'm sure it's going to be the most comfortable bra you've worn. The straps won't slip and they have these tagless labels, so it's not itchy whatsoever. And they have the super 
lightweight, thin memory foam cups that mold to the shape of your breast. And to help make sure that everybody who needs a bra has a perfect fitting one, they are offering conspirators 15% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash spirits. Go find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off at thirdlove.com slash spirits. I also must know about the version with the kitchen gods that you wrote about. Oh, yes. Sorry. That that is going into very modern versions. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So the slight background is that uh, after or around um, Disney's kind of um, animated Mulan, kind of, I I feel like East Asia just went, you know, we can make Mulan versions too. Mm -hmm. Um, So they, there was a sort of, it felt like there was a a sort of renaissance of Mm -hmm. um, TV adaptions of Mulan. And the Kitchen God version, or rather, Taiwan in the late 90s made a version and it was like something like 50 episodes it's mm. ludicrously long where the god of her her kitchen gets sent along with her to help out I mean that's a great thing to pack uh, for some time away mm-hmm. from home he's, he's a comic relief bumbling loser character so he's not terribly useful <laughs> In theory. If I remember correctly, his love interest was the goddess of the toilets. Beautiful. Remarkable. They go hand in hand. It was all very slapstick. And this is also the version where she marries the general. I don't believe he was Li Shang. He was Li something else. But mm-hmm. he's also surnamed Li. Mm-hmm. Um, and she marries the general like halfway through the episodes. And the rest of it is them being co-generals together. Oh my god. Love it. And it's quite interesting because it it kind of incorporates basically a lot of kind of women in the workplace themes as a result, mm-hmm. where he has to cope with the idea of a wife who is his equal mm-hmm. in his workplace, right. the, the army. Um, but but the army part is less important at this point, where a lot of the plots are less like you know about fighting a, a war. And it becomes much more things like, oh, no, there is a serial killer who's killing all the <laughs> flower sellers. We need to go undercover and disguise ourselves as flower sellers to set a honey trap. I mean, incredible. I just <laughs> I want to watch all 50 episodes of this now. It's, it's very late 90s. <laughs> um, but um, but I, I think it's also quite interesting. And I, and I think some of it is the limitations of their TV budgets mm-hmm. that they don't really want to or can give you battle scene after battle scene so a lot of it is is these kind of like shenanigans plots i mean that's a lot that's a big part of having a job as well so i i really love that lens of like workplace drama (laughs) (laughs) one of the kind of interesting kind of evolutions of mulan in terms of um since we kind of touched on him repeatedly is is the sort of love interest character Mm. um because it it really highlights i think different priorities like it's one of the kind of limbs like it's one of the things that are is ever changing Mm -hmm. um depending on how you translate um the original ballad it actually begins with a question of you know um mulan you know basically who are you like lovesick over like why Mm -hmm. like you know who are you pining after and it's it's it opens with a question of mulan the why so sad is framed as are you sad about her boy Mm -hmm. Um, and then she reveals well Yes, but not like that. <laughs> yeah, but it's my dad. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's about war. It, it therefore has this kind of implicit rejection of romance as its core theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of um, later versions, and partly because, you know, um, romance is always popular, kind of play with having different sorts of love interests. Uh, the 16th century play, for example, has her marry 
um, the neighbor who is a scholar. Mm-hmm. She's like the head librarian or something ridiculous like that. Incredible. And, and which is, I think, uh, quite unusual for like a, a modern pairing. Like I think um, sort of in sort of modern Western mindset, we always like to pair our warrior women with other warrior dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a rarity of that kind of the, the woman, like the kind of gender swap sort of idea where the woman gets to be the, the stabby one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I love that so much, and I'm also I'm also for more librarians in romance. Yes. <laughs> um, though, though obviously in this case, it's it's very much again reinforcing the idea that you know the the best trajectory for a man yes, is to scholar. be a scholar and and you know to um and and all the rest of that. Um, and then also kind of kind of loops back to how Li Shang as like a, a body type is is not as drawn by Disney's Mulan is not seen as like kind of the classic idealized body type mm. of um, even in animated stories of of men. Mm-hmm. He is not. He does not have the romantic hero uh, body type, though. Obviously, you know, very idealized and attractive, <laughs> and obviously, in, in the Western mind, in sort of like like he's he's built like I don't know Superman in a in a comic book. Right. But he is not. If you compare it to say how they draw characters in any of the um, uh, mainland Chinese animated stories, um, or even like some of the Hong Kong ones, he is he's very he he's martial and he's blocky in a way that like love interests get drawn as this kind of often get drawn as felt sometimes even shorter than the uh than the woman really right. wow. interesting speaking of hong kong i know you've also spoken and written about mulan um sort of like mainland versus diaspora uh, elements and like whose tale is this who's it for so if you'd like to speak a little bit about that you're absolutely welcome to the live-action Mulan is very much part of this kind of trajectory of framing Mulan as this nationalistic story that's very fundamentally Chinese, um, and and kind of leaning into all these elements of it, and, and not just because it is made for, in some ways, it's it's um, Disney's grab at the mainland Chinese market, the film market, which is is growing. Um, um, and, and it's worth a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. Right. It, it contrasts frustratingly with um, the animated Mulan, because for all that, a lot of people like to say, oh, you know, it's not very accurate. You know, there are all these ways that it deviates from kind of Chinese culture or um, or what, what people think Chinese culture is like. A lot of people, like I remember when it came out, my mom was said, oh, they all look really Japanese in it. Um, mm. Incidentally, because it's based on um, Tang Dynasty China and Tang Dynasty Chinese aesthetics do um, do share certain aspects with with, um, with Japan because that was when the period of cultural exchange happened. Mm-hmm. But Japan has better branding, so people look at it and sometimes go, oh, it looks Japanese um, <laughs> because of very old cultural exchange. But doesn't matter. Uh, though, though, um, though they also have better records um, for certain things. So in order to, if you're trying to like recreate, like build a Tang Dynasty building, you'd have to talk to Japanese people. Huh. Um, uh, Chinese people, mainland Chinese people especially, are not very happy when you like when you point that out. <laughs> <laughs> Disney's animated Mulan was a work of Asian Americans. It, it it very much it spoke a lot to the Asian American diaspora experience. It spoke a lot to sort of like the sort of third culture kids feeling of not fitting in, of not quite belonging to the culture of your parents. Um, it it a lot of Asian Americans worked on it, and they cast Asian Americans as their voice actors. Mm-hmm. And in contrast, um, the 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 upcoming currently on like live action Mulan has very much gone out of its way to court people who are already famous in mainland China who are kind of known box office draws um, and because they they bankable stars but not bankable 
stars in America, right. bankable stars in mainland China. To me, that that kind of tells you all you need to know about like who who they're looking to make the primary audience of this film. And, and it very much kind of and, and the discourse around it has been very frustrating because it very often cuts out the diaspora as part of the conversation because right. when people are like, oh, it's directed by a white person or you know, the costume designer is white, um, kind of, and it becomes this matter of like, why don't you hire someone from mainland China? Mainland China's full of people, why don't you hire them? And it's like, well, yes, but, you know, this is still an American production, and I think it is valid to remind people that Asian Americans exist, Asian American actors mm-hmm. and costume designers and um and, and script writers and directors all, all exist and, and they, they don't every role you could possibly need. Yeah, exactly. And they don't they don't get they don't get a lot of, they don't always get a lot of breaks. And they often and then, you know, much like how, you know, when um when people are talking about Parasite getting like an American remake, they're like, Oh yes, we're gonna cast, you know, someone who's not Asian mm-hmm. because the idea is like Asian people live in Asia and over here we will cast a white person sort of thing. Um and, and it's it's this idea that um the people who live in the source land, they are the, the most authentic that the people who live like the diaspora, they, they don't get a say in how Chinese culture is because they are in, in many eyes no longer authentic. Mm. And, and that's a lot of the frustration on this conversation where it's, it's very easy to reduce it to white people versus like Chinese people when, when there are kind of these, these nuances. Mm. And and who the mythology is for is important because that's that's in some ways how how you judge the the story and what it's it's trying to say, mm-hmm. um, because th- that nationalism is very strong in it. Um, and and I think the claim of Mulan being uh, a, a Chinese story, um, and you know, it is not a Chinese story. You know, there there's there's been thousands of years of Chinese people writing stories but you know not all of them are like you know the, the bannerman story that that mm. that's arguably manchu yeah well it is it is manchurian like you know bannerman are manchus um and and you've got like you know you've got the, the turkic traditions and the the idea that the chinese culture is not itself a unified singular whole that there isn't one version of mulan that all is important to remember um when we start kind of making jokes about it and and obviously, you know, how much is Mulan a rebel and how much she is basically propping up the status quo and the patriarchy mm-hmm. in that breath. Because in some ways, at the heart of Mulan is also this idea that, you know, this is a story about someone who breaks the the the, the boundaries of gender, but she does it in order to reinforce um, filial piety. Mm-hmm. And often she is used, her story is used in, in, a, in a morality tale about the importance of, you know, how, how men should, you know, get their act together. Mm-hmm. And there, there are also theories that um, her story originated as like basically a, a barbarian warrior princess story. Mm-hmm. Barbarian warrior princess being a, a certain type of story where basically a, a, a type of character basically threatens uh, masculinity and they're, they're scary because they're basically masculine but they're also women, but they're hot, but they're also terrifying, <laughs> and they're they're very emasculating, and they're always other. And this is the the, the barbarian part's very important. Mm, yeah, and and they don't just exist. So, for example, the warriors of the Yang family, for example, the women in that are sometimes uh, um, could be because like there's a there's a very fierce female general in that who um, who is kind of she's she's descent uh, her her dad's a bandit basically mm. and th- these stories of kind of 
barbaric women basically are slowly folded and over time they become they become Han, they become nationalistic as the demands of the story. But the barbarian trope, for example, you've got um, uh, there are like buckets of uh, medieval romances, like European medieval romances about um, Saracen princesses, and they're always mm-hmm. extremely badass. They they wrestle lions and tigers, and and they're they're just they're all, they're all really badass and magnificent. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you look at like sort of like Arabian Nights, you'll find fairy tales about Christian princesses who are, who, you know, who will who who will only marry the the the, the man who can beat them at chess and also wrestling. Mm-hmm. So um, and they're also incredibly badass and and you know angry and and it it's it's almost this kind of idea where you project this this masculine aggressive, sexy but also scary woman. To, to be outside of your society. Well, I can confirm my husband was only able to marry me after he beat me at chess and then wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. That is, that is the recipe for romance. I, honestly. Um, and Mulan's trajectory of, of being, like possibly originally being this kind of, she was acceptable because of these ambiguously barbaric roots right. um, slowly being folded into the sort of very Han tradition is very interesting to me, yeah. um, where she lost those... Um, um, those barbaric traits, and she becomes like fully the sort of a Han national hero, and, and as as the needs of, of of war, as as the needs of um, you know, as, as especially kind of it really turned uh, the, the biggest note was during the twentieth century when you know, China was at war and revolution was happening and women being called to arms. That was uh, that was a big big aspect of it. Oh, and I was going to rant about Liu Yufei being um, pro Hong Kong police. Yeah, um, she she stars in live action Mulan as Mulan and she's uh, she's uh, she posted on social media anti-diaspora yeah she sort of posted like basically you know um, I am part of like you know I I stand with the Hong Kong police type stuff on mainland Chinese social media it was it was a it was a hashtag that was going around Mm. so arguably she was just jumping on a bandwagon right but um, but again it kind of reinforces that feeling of Mulan being kind of not a rebel a figure who is a, a rebellious yeah. um sort of spirit but actually very much the status quo kind of reinforces that feeling which which i find kind of very interesting as, as the evolution of a story there are so many layers here and i feel like we have just scratched the surface thank you so much for introducing us for giving us such an extensive list of things that i'm immediately going to go read um can i give you a one more ridiculous um Please. kind of one more kind of hook to Mulan that I, I really like that um, that that is that is that is related in Disney's animated Mulan reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks about reflection. I'm sure you all know this, the lyrics. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. But in the Cantonese version, she specifically talks about the water. Like she talks about her reflection being her herself being in the water, mm-hmm. the, the the reflection in the water, and and herself in the mirror. I was listening to it and I realized that this it's a it's an accidental reference to Xiu Jin, the um, feminist martyr of the uh, uh, 20th century Chinese revolution, oh, whose title is um, Female Knight of the Mirror Lake. Oh, interesting. That is awesome. I, I think this is incredibly, ac- this is almost certainly accidental, but Xiu Jin, she, she died, um, well, she died a revolutionary, she was executed. Um, she, she was a bit of a Han supremacist. Um, <laughs> she was not a big fan of the uh, Manchu Qing dynasty. She was a revolutionary, she was trying to bring them down, she was trying to create a republic in China. Um, really awesome, fascinating character, badass as fuck. 
<laughs> uh, and, and she was very into the sort of idea of martial pursuits for women um, and and very much kind of went around in men's clothes. That was part of like her Fuck yeah. Her whole thing. One and, and, and that kind of element uh, and one of the people that she was emulating was in some in a way kind of Mulan. Um, was one of the kind of people she would cite as kind of inspiration of sort of female heroes of the past um, exemplars. And I thought, um, accidental or not, um, the Cantonese lyrics of Mulan kind, kind of half-reference her title, which I loved. Well, yeah, so headcanon is canon, yes. as far as I'm concerned. We'll headcanon now, yes. <laughs> uh, that is my headcanon. Jeanette, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this was one of the most fascinating conversations I think we've had on the show, genuinely. Uh, we were completely enthralled. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to learn more about you, your work, your writings about Mulan, etc.? Um, I'm on I'm on Twitter as Jeanette with underscore ng. Jeanette is spelled with two N's. Um, I, I probably be tweeting about Mulan too much in the coming days. Um, I, I am technically on team uh, boycott Mulan, so I will not be fil- talking about the film directly. Um, but I think it's an avoidable part of the conversation that I will end up talking about Mulan too much. I wrote a book. Uh, it's called Under the Pendulum Sun. It has nothing to do with Mulan or Chinese culture. It's about missionaries who go to fairyland. It's weird. Um, but I like money, so here's a plug for it. <laughs> Listen, it sounds so and- cool. All of our listeners will love it. Well, thank you again. And listeners, remember, stay creepy, stay cool. Thanks again to our sponsors at gc2b.co. You can use code spirits for 10% off your order. At thirdlove.com spirits, you can get 15% off as you buy your perfect fitting bra. And at everyplate.com, you can enter code spirits3 to get three weeks of every plate meals for only $2.99 per meal. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us your urban legends at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast for all kinds of behind the scenes stuff. Just $1 gets you access to audio extras with so much more available too. Recipe cards, director's commentaries, exclusive merch, and real physical gifts. We are a founding member of Multitude, a collective of independent audio professionals. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. And above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please share us with your friends. That is the very best way to help us keep on growing. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.